It's high noon on the 15th of July in the year of our Lord 1099, and the Crusaders have broken through the defenses of the Holy City. After years of travail from the forests of Europe through the mountains of Anatolia and a long siege in the scalding summer heat of Palestine, they finally wormed their way through the ancient walls of Jerusalem. First inside is Lethold, then Engelbert, then Bernard, and then the trickle of soldiers becomes an unstoppable torrent of bloodlusted Franks. The siege of Jerusalem has ended. The sack of Jerusalem is just beginning. Like a medieval Black Friday, their ravenous hunger to enter the city is such that 16 men are trampled to death beneath the hooves of horses and mules, and even the boots of their own fellow soldiers. But soon enough, everyone's inside. And in true Black Friday spirit, the first thing on their mind is loot. What's mine is mine, what's yours is mine. The crusading army had already settled on a finders, keepers, losers, weepers approach to sacking a city. When you came across a house you wanted, you merely affixed your weapon to the door, and the home and everything inside was now yours. In this way, even a beggar could become lord of a manor. Those who had been on the brink of starvation focused their efforts on food and drink. They slaughtered animals in the streets and roasted them in their brand new ovens. Casks of beer and wine were pulled from homes, and as the Franks chugged them down, they seeped into the streams of blood flowing through the city. Ah yes, the blood. These homes weren't just empty waiting for crusaders to come and claim them. Just moments earlier, they had belonged to families. Mothers, fathers, sons, daughters, old and young. But now, the citizens of Jerusalem were being put to the sword by a bloodthirsty mob. Well, the lucky ones were killed with the sword. Many were set on fire or thrown off rooftops. Babies were taken by the foot and smashed against buildings to put an end to their ceaseless wailing. And the bodies of the dead were then subjected to further mutilation. Fingers cut off to remove rings, intestines sliced open in case the corpse had swallowed some jewels in a vain attempt to hide them. Alright, not all the invaders were that ruthless. Though it's not like the softies had a big heart. More like cartoon dollar signs in their eyes. After all, there was value in the citizens of Jerusalem. They could be held for ransom or sold as slaves. After all was said and done, or rather screamed and butchered, the blood stained nearly every stone in the city, and the stench of rotting dead flesh would linger for months. Yet, Amongst the screams and cries for mercy, there was one other sound. The sound of Latin Christian hymns and prayers. For many a crusader, this slaughter was as fueled by carnal desire as it was by religious fervor. This was a cleansing of the infidel, and as they went about it, they raised their voices to the heavens to thank God for delivering them to the promised land. Can you imagine what this must have been like for the denizens of Jerusalem? A band of barbarians committing unspeakable atrocities, the blood flowing through the streets, and all the while they sang like maniacs? Absolutely nightmarish. As night fell, and the moribunds spurted out their last few blood-gurgling breaths, the army of the cross gathered at the holiest place in all Christendom, where the Messiah himself had died and resurrected three days later, the church of the Holy Sepulchre. And as they chanted in unison, a new kingdom was born. 
the kingdom of Jerusalem. To the north, birthed out of the same sort of bloodshed, the kingdom's siblings were also taking their first steps, the counties of Edessa and Tripoli and the Principality of Antioch. These four states would serve as distant outposts of Latin Christendom in the Middle East. They stood as testaments to the growing power of Western Europe, which was beginning to awaken from its so-called Dark Age and realize it could impose its will far from home. This is the story of the Latin East, of those kingdoms beyond the sea. This is the history of the Ultramar. Welcome to History of the Ultramare, Season 1, The Call from the East. In the 1090s, hordes of armed pilgrims made their way from Western Europe through Anatolia and then south to Syria-Palestine. Once there, many of the pilgrims became migrants and made their home on the Levantine coast. They founded four states, the county of Edessa, the Principality of Antioch, the county of Tripoli, and the largest and most powerful of them all, the Kingdom of Jerusalem. Over time, their pilgrimage was recast as the First Crusade, so named for the crosses the pilgrims had worn. And their little polities became known as the Land Beyond the Sea, or in the French dialects common among the Westerners, l'Outremer. But the story doesn't start there. How could it? That sounds like the end of a story, and it raises a lot of questions about the beginning and the middle. Why had these Franks, as the Westerners were known to the natives, come to the East in the first place? Why did they decide to stay? And how did they succeed in winning territories for themselves thousands of miles away from their homelands? The answers to these questions lie in the century prior to their arrival, the 11th century during which the Eastern Mediterranean saw massive geopolitical, social, and environmental upheavals that left it open to conquest from outsiders. This first season, The Call from the East, derives its title from historian Peter Frankopan's book of the same name. Frankopan describes the chaotic events which lead up to the Byzantine Emperor's desperate call for aid from the Pope and the Latin Christians. This tale, which we will explore in further detail, answers a good part of that first question I mentioned. Why did the Franks come? Well, nominally, to provide aid to their Christian co-religionists. If we want to start digging at those secondary questions, though, how their plans evolved into invasion and migration, well, we'll have to take an even wider survey of the land. The Byzantines might have called the Franks over, but what they did once they arrived was out of the emperor's hands it was up to the Muslims of the region to respond. But as we'll soon be seeing, political chaos wasn't unique to the Byzantines in the 11th century. The collapse in Byzantium was mirrored by similar infighting and civil war throughout the Eastern Mediterranean, both in the lands of the Fatimid Caliphate in Egypt and the Seljuk Sultanate in Iraq and Iran. These were the superpowers of the age, and their lack of focus at this critical moment was what allowed the Crusaders to slip in through the cracks. What's more, this is the history of the Outremer, 
not just the First Crusade. And in answering those questions, why and how, we'll also start laying the groundwork for the follow-up. What next? Out of the maelstrom of conflict that was the 11th century, a new world order was created. And to understand the world in which our newborn Uchimura states will find themselves in, we'll have to understand how it came to be. And of course, this is a story of West meets East, so we'll also have to do some digging into the Western Mediterranean. Because as it turns out, the First Crusade was not without its precedence. After all, when the Byzantine Emperor called for help, there was no guarantee the Pope would be willing or even able to respond. Yet, as luck would have it, the papacy had already been trying out some crusade-like endeavors elsewhere. These were still in beta, so to speak, but holy war was fast becoming the soup de jour for ambitious popes. And to understand how this came to be, we'll be traveling to southern Italy and Sicily, where the pope will first fight against, and then ally with, a gang of brutish warriors, the Norman knights, who'd come to Italy from Scandinavia by way of northern France. These Normans would be an omen of things to come, carving out their little kingdom at the expense of Byzantines and Muslims. All with the blessing of the Pope, of course. And the Normans weren't alone in using the waning power of the East to their advantage. Throughout the 11th century, the Italian merchant republics, cities like Venice and Genoa, would begin to turn the tables on their Eastern trade partners, and though we might be fooled into focusing on the battles and sieges of the First Crusade, we can't forget that none of it would have been possible without maritime and economic aid from the Italians. These Italians would use their leverage to establish trading posts in all the Utremer states, turning the conflict into profit. So all in all, our first season will take the shape of a narrative history, but one with many moving parts. As the seminal crusade historian Stephen Runciman puts it, we must understand not only the circumstances in Western Europe that led to the crusading impulse, but perhaps still more, the circumstances in the East that gave to the Crusaders their opportunity and shaped their progress and their withdrawal. Our glance was moved from the Atlantic to Mongolia to tell the story from the point of view of the Franks alone or the Arabs alone or even of its chief victims, the Christians of the East, is to miss its significance. And so here, during our first season, our glance will definitely be darting around. Our first episode starts exactly where we started today, but nearly a century earlier, in 1009, when the Church of the Holy Sepulchre was destroyed by the mad Caliph al-Hakim. From there, we'll go to Sicily, then to Constantinople, then to the vast grasslands of the Eurasian steppe, to the Armenian highlands and the Battle of Manzikert in 1071, to the Genoese and Pisan sack of the city of Medea on the Tunisian coast in 1087, to the Council of Claremont in 1095, Slowly but surely, we'll put the puzzle together, so that when we finally return to Jerusalem in 1098, the siege and bloody capture of the Holy City will be placed into its context as one more piece in the history of the Utremer. <laughs>